I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. This episode, we are going to travel back many thousands of years into Britain's history. We're talking about archaeology. HS2 is an effort to reshape and reimagine the country's rail network. A project of this magnitude does not come along very often, and just as it is built upon the legacy of the past, it offers us the opportunity to delve into that past. When it comes to building a railway, there's of course lots of work that needs to be done before the construction can even begin. And these are called enabling works. So there's all the advanced archaeological works, along with the ecological works, habitat creation, alongside the utility diversions, early highways work, but maybe early landscape working so that embankments are created and trees are planted in an earlier stage to later on maybe shield a view rather than waiting for that construction to happen. And we can't build the railway until all the environmental works are undertaken. While these may seem like steps that delay the building from starting, these steps can provide massive benefits, and in the case of archaeology, a much greater understanding of our past. In terms of the archaeological opportunity, HS2 is huge. It is the opportunity to excavate large sections of the countryside that otherwise wouldn't be necessarily subjected to development and therefore to archaeological scrutiny. So we are getting to learn things across all periods of history, all the way through prehistory, all the way through the, you know, the Roman, Saxon, medieval, post-medieval periods, right up to the modern day, about sections of the country that we wouldn't necessarily have otherwise have got to learn. For any construction project, there are requirements around archaeological concerns, and all archaeological work starts with a desk-based assessment. So you look at existing information, other archaeological projects that have happened nearby, written sources, documentary sources, and you try and figure out what's there without putting a spade in the ground. This is Mike Court, HS2's lead of historic environment. That is where you look at all the existing information through things like the historic environment records that has all previous archaeological excavations listed on it, as well as all archaeological finds um, that we know of. And it's all plotted on a, on a map as well, so you can physically see that relation between what you're reading about and the scheme that you're looking at building or the client is looking at building. And this is Dr Rachel Wood, one of the archaeological managers on HS2. Now, if there are any known sites of archaeological interest in the area, it will likely lead to some non-intrusive geophysical surveying of that site. If that geophysics is then looking promising, if there's a lot of features on there or potential features, we then go to trial trenching, which is a bit like, so geophysics is a bit like x-raying the ground. Trial trenching is a bit like keyhole surgery. You get a little peek under the soil. Then you have to make a decision based on the historical importance of what you actually find. So if all you find is a Roman field system, you don't really need to progress that beyond trial trenching because it's just another field system. It's some ditches surrounding some fields. And ultimately, progressing that to mitigation and getting, you know, at the, at the cost to the client is not going to contribute to the archaeological knowledge. Knowing it's there and knowing it's Roman is enough. But equally, if you find 
um, you know, the edge of a settlement or things that look like buildings or something else that we didn't know was there that, you know, possibly a graveyard or something a bit more complex. And it gets way more complex when the project you're working on isn't just a new car park or a new housing project, but an entire railway spanning over 200 miles and what would come to be the biggest archaeological project in Europe. And when it came to planning all this archaeological work on HS2, Mike Court and Helen Watt, HS2's head of historic environment, were delivering against the Heritage Memorandum. The Heritage Memorandum is the Secretary of State's commitment to the historic environment. And in that document, it's only about seven or so pages long, it has all the hooks on which we have to follow. So develop an historic environment research and delivery strategy to deliver that, those commitments. Engage with our stakeholders, so largely local authority, archaeologists, conservation officers, uh, Historic England engage with communities, and then develop a whole series of technical standards and practices so that we can undertake our works consistently from one end of the route to another, engage competent professionals, and of course adhere to all the checks and balances and the legal requirements that we have in the Act. Yeah, that's it, I think, isn't it? It's very much sort of the first stage of the protection of historic environment on a project like this, and it's very, very high level. So it basically says the project will look after historic environment, which is archaeology and historic buildings, by the way. <laughs> and then from there, we have to develop all of the other ways that that's achieved. So with a document laying out what was expected of HS2 when it came to protecting the historical environment, Mike and Helen then had to come up with a plan of action. And it's not possible to do archaeological fieldwork along the entire 134 miles of phase one. So Mike and Helen developed a plan to decide where the most important areas of archaeological interest were along the route. And the plan was called the Historic Environmental Research Delivery Strategy, or HERDS. What the HERDS does is it takes the requirements in the Heritage Memorandum and it translates them into something that our specialist contractors can use to decide how they're going to do archaeology and why they're going to do archaeology. And um, I suppose to go right back to the very beginning, High Speed 2 is absolutely massive. And so Helen and I, talking to lots of other very clever people, decided that the way to do that was to understand on the route of High Speed 2 what we understand and what we don't understand and to develop a sort of a list of questions that can answer those gaps in knowledge. High Speed 2 covers huge stretches of the country, different landscapes, different geologies and thousands of years of human history. Developing the questions that would shape the focus of the fieldwork wasn't a job that Mike or Helen could handle on their own. When we were developing the herds, we very quickly realised that we couldn't come up with all the answers ourselves and we needed to go out to as transparent and diverse a group of people as possible, mostly to find out what was important to them. We needed to ensure that our stakeholders understood that we had questions to answer, but also a job to do. Actually, we're building a railway. It might be the biggest archaeological project ever. 
but we are still building a railway with taxpayers' money. But the academic process and the research process has been really vigorous. So after a lot of consultation with Historic England, local authorities, archaeology groups, academics, contractors and communities, they had a list of questions that could help focus the fieldwork. On a project like High Speed 2, you're moving, you're building through a huge landscape, aren't you? So you can ask landscape level questions. But on a smaller project, you can't really do that. You can only ask little local questions, which are also interesting. But so you can think about what people were doing in the past across the whole of the country, really. For me, the bigger questions are the landscape level questions, the more interesting questions, like what happened when we moved from, say, the Iron Age into the Roman period? How do people cope with that transition? At the end of the Neolithic into the Bronze Age, uh, settlements got a lot smaller, the population reduced. Why is that? You know, these bigger questions you can look at if you're doing a number of sites across the whole country, but which you can't really answer as easily with a, a smaller site. But one of the major challenges they faced was actually getting access to the land that they wanted to investigate. Before the project went to Parliament, supported by an environmental statement, access to land was by negotiation. So working with our land and property team, they negotiated with uh, landowners as to whether or not we could get there to do non-intrusive survey work. So this is any technique which is basically walking onto somebody's often farmer's fields. And... Uh, Certainly on phase one, landowners were, let's say, sceptical and reluctant to allow access. But that's quite an early part of our role here at Hospital was communicating that and and helping the land and property team to speak to people whose land we were going on to help them understand that we weren't pillaging their land, essentially, that archaeological um, information is, is about learning and about knowledge. Now, with access to the land and a plan of what they wanted to investigate, Mike and Helen brought in archaeologists from all over the country to begin their fieldwork. At peak, we had over a thousand archaeologists working, which is a huge amount, a large percentage, actually, of the archaeological industry. And we had over 60 sites running at one point. But we try and stagger the way that we do archaeological work so that we don't have everybody working together all at the same time and run out of people. The route was broken up into sections and each section was then run by an archaeological manager like Dr Rachel Wood. So the patch of HS2 I was responsible for roughly ran from a place called Great Missenden up to Stoke Mandeville and that's just south of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. In Dr Wood's patch, there were around 20 sites that went forward from a geophysical survey to trial trenching. And they ranged from a surprise uh, Anglo-Saxon burial ground at Wendover that we did not know was there. Um, You know, archaeology happens that way sometimes. You, You really don't know what you're going to find until you put a spade in the ground a lot of the time. I also had... Uh, the Wellick Farm site, which we found, um, that was a whole monumental landscape running from the Neolithic all the way through to the Roman period. And we had a Neolithic circle, uh, reminiscent of Stonehenge, but made of wood, which was, that was a, you know, slightly surreal moment when I got that phone call. 
And it also had Bronze Age burials. There was a Roman-led coffin burial there, but there was also um, an Iron Age and later Saxon-looking kind of area of settlement just next to it as well. So that was more of a trying to understand how the pathway that runs through that site connected everything together and looking at the long use of that site through, I mean, that's several thousand years worth of history right there. And you can find links to more information on these wonderful sites and discoveries in the show notes. But perhaps the most interesting archaeological site that was uncovered during this phase of HS2 was St Mary's Church. It is a demolished medieval church that sits just outside of Stoke Mandeville Village near Aylesbury. And it was built in around 1080, so not long after the Norman Conquest at all. And it had a long life as a, as a parish church. And then by the late 1800s, the villagers were clearly a bit tired of uh, trekking the kind of couple of kilometres outside of the village centre uh, for their Sunday sermons every week. And they had a new church built in the village. The old church was left to fall apart. The windows fell out, the roof caved in, and part of the tower fell down. By 1966, it was deemed too dangerous to leave standing. So the royal engineers were brought in to pull the disused church down. And there it remained. It was surrounded by, uh, it and its churchyard was surrounded by an iron, wrought iron fence, and some, some trees, and was, broadly speaking, an overgrown churchyard. The old St Mary's Church had always been a bit of a mystery. Like, why was it built so far out of the village in the first place? There were two kind of logical explanations for that. One, was it actually a chapel built as part of a manorial estate, so belonging to the big posh house of the local lord? Um, Or was Stoke Mandeville Village in a different place now to what it used to be, had the village once been around the church and has, you know, with time shifted slightly. With important questions to be answered, the St Mary site moved forward to trial trenching. So we found in the the church sits um, on a kind of three-sided island. So the field that it's in has got streams along three sides of it that come to a confluence. So the streams meet just to the north of where the church is. In that kind of rectangle of land, the church and churchyard sits in the middle with the church itself just just on top of a slight, very slight bump. And all of this is at the bottom of a very shallow valley, which contributes to making it wet. Within that three-sided island, but immediately around the church, we found um, a, a very large ditched enclosure. And the ditch was big enough for the archaeologist digging it to describe it as a moat. It's not a moat around a castle. Basically, it was the archaeologist's way of saying, this is a really big ditch, big enough to be considered defensive. It's not like a drainage ditch or anything like that. And the Bishop of Lincoln is known to have had a tax collection centre near Aylesbury. And in those days, taxes were often collected as tithes, um, so people would bring their grain contribution, etc., and drop it off. And that's essentially what we think we have here. We think we have the Bishop of Lincoln's Tithe Collection Centre just outside of Stoke Mandeville, which is just outside of Aylesbury. The St Mary's Church began as a small chapel that was used by a representative of the Bishop of Lincoln to collect taxes from the locals. 
it was a, a two-cell structure, which means it had a, a, a nave and a chancel. Um, the nave being the bit where everybody sits and the chancel being the bit where the altar was. And then over the years that got added to, altered, you know, the Victorians put a porch on and back in the 1600s they added a tower and things like that. So yeah, that alone was quite a surprise. Um, but the surprise didn't end there. Now they moved from trial trenching the site to a process known as mitigation. If trial trenching is like keyhole surgery, then mitigation is open surgery. So the mitigation is open area excavation. We take off all the topsoil and subsoil across that defined area, excavate all of the cut features that are, that can be seen. So pits, post holes, ditches, uh, trackways, Any if there's any graves there. Um, obviously the post holes and things could also take the form of buildings. We excavate all of that. We collect all the data that's written records digital records we fly drones we scan everything we create 3d models but we also collect all the artifacts as well um any and all you know pottery animal bone uh, obviously any human remains that may be there any bits of uh, you know things like beads that might have been jewelry or metal pins like brooches things like that we collect it all and then archaeology is inherently a destructive act. Once you dig it, you can never put it back uh, the way it originally was. So the, we record by record, we preserve by record. So all of that information is then the representation of that archaeological site. It means that it can be reinterpreted in many years to come. This mitigation of the St. Mary's Church site wasn't just for the church, but also the surrounding valley. And during that time, it was discovered that the valley had been home to a settlement for a very long time. The mitigation work showed that that um, was quite a long-lived settlement. It appears to have been quite wealthy. There's some very fancy pottery that's, that's been found, quite a lot of it. Uh, some of it that's come over from the continent. Things like Samian ware, which is very well-known Roman pottery from what is now France. And that had an Iron Age predecessor in terms of an, an Iron Age settlement existing there before the Roman period. We think it was probably continuously occupied. So we can see that there's people living in this little shallow valley or on the sides of it for, for quite a long period of time before the Normans appeared and the Bishop of Lincoln built his lovely church. What we were not expecting was to find anything underneath the church. The mitigation work on St Mary's Church started with taking a 3D scan of everything that was still there, including some bits of wall and bits of flooring. Then Rachel and her team can start taking the church apart, in essence, backwards through time. So we took off what remained of the last thing that was added to the building first. So you quite literally excavate backwards through time. And that left us with the very, very bottom of the foundations, it's all that was left of it, of the Norman outline of the church. And we photographed it at each, each stage and scanned it at each stage. When we got to the point where we could see the Norman foundations, um, it's uh, a, a flint, structure. Uh, made, the walls are made of flint rather than brick or anything like that. And it sits on this kind of chalky, compacted raft, almost a rectangular raft that they've put on the, on the landscape to kind of flatten it out 
mentioned that it sits on a bit of a rise. So they've flattened that out, built the church and gone from there. But once we got on, we have to excavate down to kind of untouched natural ground. It's the only way to be sure that you've removed all of the archaeology. So we couldn't stop at the Norman foundations. We had to keep going. And so they continued excavating past the church's foundations, removing the base of the wall. And we could see that these flint walls and the chalk raft were sat on on the northern side of the church. They were sat directly on top of the remains of another wall. Again, it was just the very, very base of it. It was kind of, you know, one flint stone tall. And that wall was about a metre wide. And as we, as we got further, we could see that there was a square chalk raft under the kind of the west end of the nave of the Norman church, pretty much centrally on top of where this mound was. And as we got a bit further, we could see that there was a circular ditch surrounding this square building. They continued to dig, removing the remnants of the medieval church until they came across a different building underneath. We were looking at um, a square building that had what looked like something called terra siglata. It's essentially Roman concrete. It is used, you know, in flooring. Um, they they break up pieces of um, building material and, and set it and it's it forms a, a type of very kind of pinky concrete. It's very recognisable. You could see the shape of the structure from this chalk raft, the surrounding soil being clay. So that stood out quite obviously. They had stumbled across a Roman building that was knocked down to build a Norman church on top of it. But they still didn't know what type of building it was. That was until they started removing the rubble. And I will not forget the day I got the phone call about this. I was working in an ACOM office due to go down to site the following day to do my regular site visits. And um, I actually got a text message with a picture. And as the archeologists had been removing the rubble, they'd been trained to look for architectural pieces as part of our work with the church. So things that are obviously square or look like a window or could have been a column, anything like that. One of the archaeologists in Rachel's team noticed a very flat rectangular piece amongst the rubble. And so they picked it up and turned it over. And there was a pair of finely carved shoulders. Uh, no head, just a pair of shoulders, robed in what looked to everyone involved like a toga. A pair of shoulders wearing a toga. And this is what I got a, a picture of um, by text message, swiftly followed by a phone call saying, you will never guess what we found. None of us could quite believe it. An hour later, I got another phone call saying, you really will not believe it this time. Um, they'd found a head, a finely carved head of a woman. She quite clearly looked like a woman. She's got a very ornate hairstyle, really fine features, and she just looks... Roman. The first thing the archaeologists checked was, do the shoulders match the head? The answer was no. When you stood her head on the pair of shoulders, her chin was too far down and she was her head was at the wrong angle. She was looking at the floor. So, oh, well, that's a shame that they don't match. But hey, it, we would have been happy just with the shoulders. That is a once in a career find. 
Despite the head and shoulders not matching, it was an incredible find, which would help to uncover what kind of building the Romans had built there. I went for my site visit the next day and we found another pair of shoulders and another head. Again, shoulders in a, in a toga. This time the head was of a man. Um, he was a bit more worn than the woman and um, the male head fit the first pair of shoulders and the female head fit the second pair of shoulders. We also found the head of a child, all made out of stone, I should say, and all finely carved. The male head and the child's head were very um, heavily weathered. A lot of the features were, were a bit damaged. Um, and we also found a, an amazing hexagonal glass jug or bottle, um, quite large. All of this <laughs> points towards the square structure having been a Roman mausoleum um, or tomb. The statues presumably representing people who were buried in the tomb. So we have what looks to be the burial ground of the people who were living on the hill, just on the side of the valley. We have their mausoleum, presumably of the, of the wealthy owners of that property, and some of their, their family. The team would never have imagined that the building and its attending finds would have survived the construction of a Norman church, the tax collection centre around it, the digging of the ditch. All the structural additions to that church, all the way from, you know, the 11th century through to the 19th century when it finally went out of use, plus all of the burials in the churchyard. We excavated just over 3,000 in situ burials, but there would have been more. Periods of churchyard clearance, things like that, had removed some of them. All of that ground disturbance, and yet preserved under the church in a greater condition than we could have ever anticipated was this Roman mausoleum with, with these just amazing statues. Across the length of phase one of HS2, we're hearing about a whole host of amazing archaeological discoveries that have been made. Like the Wendover Saxon site, where trial trenching revealed five graves with what they believe to be some Iron Age artefacts. We tested them and did find human remains in a couple of them. One had what looked like a possible spear or knife, and one had what looked like a bracelet. And it was all looking very Iron Agey, along with all the pottery and things that we'd had out some of the other pits and post holes, were then um, covered over and protected until all the various licenses um, and, and legal paperwork could be obtained. And then in the, the mitigation stage, we found 141 individuals these people are not Iron Age, they are Anglo-Saxons. And more than that, they are Anglo-Saxons from right around the turn um, of the 5th century. So that period immediately after the end of Roman administration, we have a, a cemetery, burial ground of people who lived then. They were buried with an absolute wealth of objects. Now, Anglo-Saxon cemeteries that have previously been discovered are considerably smaller and usually around 20 or 30 individuals. And usually it's a minority of people who have been found buried with items around them. So normally when you find one, you might find, you know, two or three or five individuals that are clearly the wealthier ones. They're the ones buried with all the posh stuff, all the best jewellery. Somebody might have a sword or a shield or something like that but they're definitely in the minority of the, the cemetery population. At the Wendover site, it was the opposite. 
three quarters of the individuals buried there had all this amazing stuff buried with them. So it's it's the complete opposite. We assume these are the Anglo-Saxons of Wendover. We didn't have any any hint of Saxon settlement at the site, and the, the nearest known one is Wendover. So we think we're looking at the wealthier set of, of Saxon Wendover. Um, but the objects date from the 5th century all the way through to the early 7th. And we had some really amazing things, um, thousands of beads. We did have one sword. I would have felt very cheated excavating a Saxon cemetery without at least one sword. Who wouldn't feel cheated without a sword? We also had a woman who was buried with the most beautiful, complete bowl. Um, It's a complete glass bowl and it dates to right around 400 AD. So right around the turn of the 5th century. So that is a Roman bowl. This lady was also buried with um, these little silver, silvered discs um, that look that have been made to look like miniature shields, complete with a little copper alloy uh, strap on the back of them. And the specialists tell us that they would have formed some sort of necklace decoration or maybe a belt decoration, something in, in that region. If that interpretation is correct, then stylistically they are dated to the early 7th century. So with one individual, you have two objects buried with that one person that were made as much as 200 years apart. That is an absolutely fascinating story and I would love to know more about it. Both ends of phase one of HS2, so London, Euston and Birmingham, Curzon Street, were also home to archaeological discoveries. At Euston, there is St. James's Burial Ground, which was excavated and uncovered 40,000 human remains, including Captain Matthew Flinders, who's the explorer who led the first circumnavigation of Australia and who is also credited with giving Australia its name. And in Birmingham, what was uncovered is what is believed to be the first ever railway roundhouse, which opened in 1837. But even after all the excavations are complete and the new artefacts are unearthed, as fascinating as they are, that is only one half of the work for the archaeologists on HS2. The process of understanding what it is that we've been digging up for the last six or seven years is a process that almost takes as long as the actual excavation. The post-excavation analysis, where you do the science, where you do the research, where you try and just figure out what on earth all these people were doing in the Roman period, is something that we're just starting next year. Even though we've been able to tell some amazing stories so far, the analysis over the next five to ten years will really give us extra detail and extra layers of understanding. So it will change those stories, maybe focusing not just on the amazing Roman statues that we found in St Mary's, but a a wider picture of why they were there, what the Romans were doing, and then how that landscape changed through to the sort of Norman and Victorian time. HS2 is making sure that the huge amount of data that is being collected through the archaeological process is accessible and that the artefacts that have been found are preserved and available for future study. All of our digital material is being curated for the long term by the Archaeology Data Service. So that's a a trusted repository. So they will migrate all of the software and material so that if you want to come and access it in 10 years, 20 years time, and we've moved technologies, they will migrate that forward. And then that is an open 
open access data source, whether it's photographs, databases, Excel spreadsheets, Word documents, you will be able to go in there. The archaeological work has unearthed some unexpected and undeniably amazing discoveries that will teach us new things about how people used to live in Britain. But what I think is interesting is the scale and importance placed on the archaeological work on HS2 has also shown us how far archaeology has come within the construction industry. It's planned works. We've actually got time in our programme from all the sort of surveys and research that we've done. And we said, this is what we're going to do here for this long, with this many people, for this much money, and then we'll be done. Thank you very much. I think the fact that Mike and I have both been on the project for about 10 years says a lot about the investment. And, our, you know, and we have environmental colleagues who have been on the project equally long, or they've been people in post, whether it's air quality, landscape, ecology, mm. who invest their time and effort to plan that work so that when the railway does come, then we've done what we need to do for the environment. Next time on How to Build a Railway. You assume the owners have a pretty good idea of what they are, and they've just been lost over the years. You have to sort of open up a, a joint bay, which might be the size of a double-decker bus. To be able to build a fully detailed three-dimensional map of all of the services that lie under the ground. Quite visionary, and I think it's still something that is evolving and emerging. £70 million was put in my hands by Her Majesty's Treasury. Very, very complex built environment. The best Christmas present I've ever had. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Rachel Wood, Helen Wass and Mike Court. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.